This is Shields High. Gather around, my friends, for I have a story to tell. The epic tale of a man who came to be known as the Hammer, Charles Martel. You may have heard of Charles, perhaps in passing, or maybe not at all. That's because there are two versions of what happened on that fateful day. One of those versions, in the year of our Lord 732 A.D., is the one generally taught in schools today, if it's covered at all. And it goes something like this. After the fall of Rome, the greatest civilization the world had ever known, there was a skirmish in the territory of what is today France. A Muslim raiding force fought a Frankish army near the towns of Tours and Poitiers. The Muslims lost this battle, and then the Christian forces went back to squabbling amongst themselves, and the Dark Ages continued on for a few hundred years. Some scholars and historians maybe use this event as something of a geographic marker in that this battle, the Battle of Tours, was the furthest that Muslim soldiers ever made it into the heart of Europe. But I have another version for you. The truth of what happened in October of 732 on that field near the cities of Tours and Poitiers, Europe was saved. Jihad was stopped. Christendom was preserved. Western civilization survived. Yes, the modern world we now know, all of it, all of it turned on Charles Martel defeating a ruthless and skilled Islamic army through a great roll of the dice. Because of that day on the 10th of October, 732, because of those brave soldiers under the command of Prince Charles of the Franks, the forces of jihad were held at bay. And the Middle Ages led to the Renaissance, the age of exploration, the Industrial Revolution, and the global ascendance of the Western world. But it almost was not so. The darkness of conquest, slavery, and submission nearly spread across the whole of Europe. There would have been no Europe, no Britain, and no America had Charles lost on that day. When you look through the lens of the years preceding this battle, the victory at Tours was something of a miracle. In fact, the odds heavily favored that the forces of Islam would have easily swept away Charles and his forces off the battlefield. Once that was accomplished, the underbelly of Europe lay almost entirely undefended, Paris is only 150 miles or so from Tours, where the pivotal battle took place. If Charles had lost, there was simply no force that would have stopped the Muslim general Abdelrahman al-Ghafiqi from conquering all the way to the coast of northern France and beyond. A 19th century historian, Sir Edward Gibbon, described the dire situation of the Christian forces leading up to the Battle of Tours in his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And he described the seemingly invincible march of the Islamic hordes in this way. A victorious line of march had been prolonged above a thousand miles from the rock of Gibraltar 
to the banks of the Loire. The repetition of an equal space would have carried the Saracens to the confines of Poland and the highlands of Scotland. The Rhine is not more impassable than the Nile or Euphrates, and the Arabian fleet might have sailed without a naval combat into the mouth of the Thames. Perhaps the interpretation of the Koran would now be taught in the schools of Oxford, and her pulpits might demonstrate to a circumcised people the sanctity and truth of the revelation of Muhammad. End quote. Those were the stakes on the battlefield that day at Tours. Everything that we know, cherish, and love in the West could have been lost. To fully appreciate how unlikely the victory of Charles Martel's side was that day, to get a real sense of the desperation of those Christian foot soldiers and light cavalry on the battlefield of Tours, we have to look at the events leading up to it. A desert prophet of the Arabian Peninsula, over 3,000 miles away, had inspired a band of fanatical warriors to march under the banners of Islam. Their goal was no less than the subjugation of the entire world. And in the early 700s, they were coming closer and closer to that end state. Part 1. The Unstoppable Jihad Given their rapid succession of victories and the massive breadth of territories they conquered in the 7th century, many true believers from within the Ummah, the Islamic community, were certain that absolute victory was inevitable. The forces of Jihad, Christians called them Saracens during this period, had a breathtaking series of triumphs that brought the crescent moon of Islam to the entire Arabian Peninsula and well beyond. It stretched across what we know today as the Middle East. Muslim armies made it as far east as the Indus River on the Indian subcontinent and all the way across North Africa from Egypt in the east to what is today Algeria in the west and Morocco. Much of these gains came at the expense of the Byzantine Empire, though it would be more accurate to think of the Byzantines and their capital city of Constantinople as the Eastern Roman Empire. You see, the Roman Empire fell in 476 AD, leading to the Dark Ages in Europe, but Rome had broken into East and West long before then, and it was a Christian empire in the 7th and 8th centuries but it had deteriorated inside and out. It was this enfeebled Byzantine Empire that was left with the defense of Eastern Christianity, and it was outmatched by the fanatics of Islam. What we now think of as the heart of the Arab-Muslim Middle East was, until the warriors of Muhammad came along in the 7th century, Christian land. A century of expansionist jihadist blitzkrieg had only been slowed by geography and natural boundaries. It seemed there were no armies that could stand up to the Islamic onslaught. No army, that is, until Charles Martel. But there were tremendous advantages for the Islamic horde, most notably their cavalry, 
They were simply too good for any of the defenders they had come up against. Conversion or death by the sword had been the only choice given to the men and women caught in the path of the caliph, the ruler of Islam, from which we derive the term caliphate. It was only the wealthiest and most well-defended city of the Christian world at this time, Constantinople, present-day Istanbul, Turkey, that was able to check the advance of Islam with the first siege of the city unsuccessful in 674, despite the massive losses of Byzantine lands to the east that preceded the siege. The jihad found another pathway into Europe. While naval capabilities in the early 8th century made a major invasion by the sea, unlikely to succeed even against a weakened and squabbling Christian Europe, the rapid conquest and conversion of all of North Africa opened another avenue of invasion by the Muslims into Europe. Under the Umayyad Caliphate, whose capital city was Damascus in modern Syria, a backdoor invasion route into Europe became possible. Rather than battering down the immense walls of the nearly impregnable fortress of Constantinople, the Umayyads could cross the Mediterranean at the Strait of Gibraltar that separate the continent of Africa from that of Europe. Morocco is a mere seven miles across the water from Spain. In fact, Gibraltar was named for the Arab general Tariq ibn Zayed. Gibraltar is Jebel Tariq, or the Mountain of Tariq. Others had called it the Pillars of Hercules or the Strait of Cadiz. But Gibraltar would become the invasion route for the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula, which would take 700 years for the forces of Christendom, most notably the Spanish kingdom, to reverse in 1492 A.D. In 711 A.D., the Saracens did not merely have the Iberian Peninsula in their sights. They expected to crush the European Christians as easily as they had much of the Byzantine forces, the Persians, and countless other nations and tribes who had stood in their path to no avail. At the start of the 8th century, Europe was in the Dark Ages. The glory of Rome had long since faded. Once the caliphate added the kingdoms of Western Europe to its domains, the jihad would have Christendom in a pincer from East and West. It would be a crescent moon as vice to destroy the entirety of the European Christian world. In time, Constantinople would be surrounded. Christianity itself could be extinguished. Those were the stakes and the situation of the Christian states in advance of that fateful battle between Charles Martel and the Saracens. Part two, the Muslim conquest of Spain. The caliph in Damascus, Al-Walid I, was also the leader of the Umayyad dynasty. He felt nearly invincible as his armies crossed the threshold of Europe into Spain in 711 AD. 
The Umayyads had already taken the Sasanian Empire of Persia, and they had completely overrun much of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Empire, that of the Byzantines. They had plundered, seized those captives they wanted, and converted countless Christians who had no choice. With vast domains already under the caliph's thumb, the Iberian Peninsula was a ripe target for invasion. And make no mistake about it, this military mission into Hispania, as it was called, was a jihad. It was holy war. The Muslim armies of the early 700s believed that it was their religious duty to kill or convert all who stood in their way. Pillage, rape, and slaughter were conducted without compunction by the Islamic horde. They called the territory of Spain Al-Andalus, named for the Vandals. Much of the Islamic army that crossed the Strait of Gibraltar was comprised of Berbers, a North African ethnic group that would later form the vast Almohad Empire in the 12th and 13th centuries. Berbers were skilled on horseback and fearless warriors. Muslims defeated the Visigoths in Spain. Within a decade, they had established control of the Iberian Peninsula in its entirety. The Emirate of Cordoba, as it was called, became one of the most influential and prosperous Muslim regions in all history. The Christian states of Europe, meanwhile, were constantly at each other's throats. This was how Charles Martel, the Hammer, became the wily and skilled commander that would save Christianity. Long before the arrival of the Muslim horde at the Battle of Tours, Charles had been honing his strategies and tactical proficiency against a host of his fellow Christians. He fought against Germanic tribes in the decade before the Battle of Tours, notably the Saxons, and consolidated his power. A big part of Charles's success involved getting the support of the church. You see, Charles was never king. He was technically the mayor of the palace, or referred to as a prince, but he wielded more authority than the actual king of the Franks during his reign. As the threat of Islamic conquest grew more imminent, Charles understood that to defeat the Saracens, he would need money for an army that was not limited by the harvest season. Charles even went as far as to seize church lands and funds to pay for his troops. The savior of Christianity, ironically, was at one point on the verge of excommunication by the church. But then the major Muslim invasion that all expected grew nearer and nearer. Starting in 721 AD, the Christian kingdom to the south of the Franks, Aquitaine, was under assault by the Saracens and losing battle after battle. In fact, at the city of Toulouse, it took a last-minute reprieve by Duke Odo of Aquitaine to reinforce the besieged city and chase away, for a time, the Muslim commander Al-Gafiki's army. But Odo knew that the only way he could regain that lost territory in Aquitaine and prevent the full seizure of his kingdom by the forces of Jihad was to ally with Charles Martel of the Franks. With this pact in place, 
Charles and Duke Odo, would force one decisive battle. It would echo throughout the ages, the Battle of Tours. Part three, the final battle is joined. October 10th in the year of our Lord, 732. 15,000 Franks stood across the field against a formidable army of 50,000 Saracens. The Christians were outnumbered by the Muslim forces by over three to one, including an elite vanguard of cavalry. Al-Ghafiqi, the Muslim general, certainly thought he would have his way with this force that opposed him. He wanted a decisive engagement. He no doubt thought that this was an upstart rabble of Frankish barbarians who would break lines and flee after the first cavalry charge or be slaughtered in place. Gafiki's plan was clear. Once he had finished off Prince Charles, he could continue on with his army to pillage and destroy the city of Tours and the monasteries in the area, which were thought to be laden with riches. Charles Martel knew that he was outmatched both in manpower and maneuver. His forces had been harassed and attacked by Saracen scouting parties for seven days, but they refused to be drawn into an open field on the enemy's terms. Charles had to neutralize the speed and maneuverability of Gafiki's cavalry while also compensating for being outnumbered. The high ground. That was essential. Charles knew it was his only chance. He had to pick the place of battle or all would be lost. He ordered his forces to hold the high ground on a hill with trees screening both flanks and a hilly slope leading up to his main position. The incline limited the speed of the cavalry, and the trees both obscured the strength of Charles' forces and made it more difficult for cavalry charges to pull off a flanking maneuver. The formation Charles chose for his heavy infantry would have been familiar to the Roman legionaries or the Greek hoplites of centuries past. The Franks formed a phalanx of spears and, shoulder to shoulder, held their shields high. Charles's men knew they could expect no quarter from the invading Muslim horde. If they lost, their villages would be burned to the ground, their women and children enslaved or massacred. The front line of infantry braced themselves as the final assault commenced. The pounding hooves of Gafiki's cavalry shook the ground. A wave of mounted Saracens crashed into Frankish shields, sending splinters and body parts in every direction. Blood sprayed across the muddy grass. Saracens on horseback thrust at the Frankish foot soldiers with spears and hacked at them with scimitars. The Franks in ranks behind the front used their Francisca throwing axes to deadly effect, knocking lightly armored Saracens off their horses and then finishing them off with their short sword. Wave after wave of Saracen cavalry charged into the Frankish ranks and in near miraculous fashion, the Franks held their lines. According to Isidore of Beya's Chronicle, quote, in the shock of the battle, the men of the north seemed like a North Sea 
cannot be moved. Firmly they stood, one close to another, forming, as it were, a bulwark of ice, and with great blows of their swords they hewed down the Arabs, drawn up in a band around their chief. The people of the Austrasians carried all before them. Their tireless hands drove their swords down to the breasts. End quote. The battlefield turned into a mess of Saracens' writhing bodies, severed limbs, and spilled entrails. The martial contest between Cross and Crescent on this day was turning into a rout. It was not only Martel's choice of battlefield that was so essential to this victory. He did have a contingent of scouts, which he sent around the rear of the Saracen ranks. They were not noticed by their enemies. This Frankish scout troop attacked the camp of the Saracens, where all of the treasures and gold from their previous ransacking was stored. When word reached the Saracen rear that their precious booty was at risk, many of them left their comrades in arms to save the remnants of their treasure back at camp. The Saracens further up the ranks saw this, and after disheartening losses from the numerous cavalry charges, they believed that a full retreat was in effect. The bulk of forces began to withdraw from the battlefield. The Saracens engaged in combat saw this and ran to join their fleeing comrades. General Al-Gafiki, recognizing that the tide had turned, tried to rally his Saracens to his side. The Franks rushed toward the commander of Islam's forces, surrounded him, and struck him dead. Despite the pullback, Prince Charles refused to give pursuit, thinking it could be a trap. The rest of Gafiki's forces ignominiously retreated back to their camp. Muslim losses ran in the thousands of killed. Perhaps this is why the Arabs call what happened that day near the city of Tur the Battle of the Palace of the Martyrs. Charles Martel had beaten the elite military of the Muslim Caliphate. Christendom was saved from the Islamic conquest. Part 4. The Holy Roman Empire and the Birth of Europe. After Charles's tremendous victory, this is how he became known as the Hammer, according to the Chronicle of Saint-Denis. Quote, then he was first called Martel, for as a hammer of iron, of steel, and of every other metal, even so he dashed and smote in the battle all his enemies. And what was the greatest marvel of all, he only lost in that battle 1,500 men. Now, after Tour, there were numerous other engagements with Muslim forces, but Charles had established that he could defeat them, that the forces of jihad were no longer invincible, and Charles borrowed one of their most important tactical advantages for himself, heavy cavalry. Charles recognized that going toe-to-toe and head-to-head with the Islamic forces would require maneuvers on his part that his Christian brethren 
up to that point had resisted or not seen as absolutely necessary. Charles was also known for being the grandfather of Charlemagne, the founder of the Holy Roman Empire and the founder of Europe as we know it. The Carolingians came directly from Charles Martel the Hammer. Charles even donated land in central Italy to the church, which later became the Papal States. He saved Christianity in Europe, set the basis for the world, the Western world that we know today, and kept alight the flame of Western civilization. Our next story in this series will be the fall of Jerusalem. Please pass this podcast along to friends, spread it far and wide. Let the great deeds of Charles Martel, the hammer, be known. For as the Almogavars would say during the Reconquista, as they smash their swords on stones to create sparks and prepare themselves for battle, it is time to awake iron.